0: As-salamu alaykum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. And in this series, we will be covering the Sira or the life of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And we are now on Sira episode number thirty-five. In the last episode, we discussed. Prophet Muhammad and the Muslims' conquest of Mecca, commonly known as the Battle of Mecca or the Conquest of Mecca. And at the end of that chapter, we mentioned how there was a force of pagans amassing outside of Mecca, well, further outside of Mecca, several miles outside of Mecca towards Ta'if. And this eventually led to the Battle of Hunayn, and that's what we're going to talk about in this episode. The Battle of Hunayn took place in Shawwal 8AH. Shawwal is the 10th month of the Islamic calendar, comes right after Ramadan. And also this battle is discussed in the Quran in chapter 9, that is Surah Taubah, verse 25 and 26. So the news of the conquest of Mecca, it shocked and terrified several of the surrounding pagan tribes who had been hoping for the Quraysh to win, and also they were scared that after the Muslims had conquered Mecca, then they'll come on to them. And two of the tribes that were most worried about it were the Hawazin and the Thaqif. The Hawazin were a large group of North Arabian tribes, and many, but not all, of the Hawazin tribes participated in the Battle of Hunayn. Thaqif, on the other hand, that was the primary tribe in the city of Ta'if, and Ta'if was about 75 miles southwest of Mecca. And we mentioned Ta'if several episodes ago before the Hijra. Prophet Muhammad Wasallam, and at the, his adopted son of the time, Zayd ibn Haritha, they traveled to Ta'if where the Prophet was hoping to perhaps spread the message there and perhaps receive some sort of sanctuary. And the prophet was rudely treated while he was there. And so now, with the conquest of Mecca and this huge Muslim army of ten thousand soldiers in Mecca, the Hawazin and the Thaqif thought that they might be next, and the Muslims would set their sights on them. Even though, from the history we have, that was never in the prophet's intentions, but Allah knows best. Anyway, the Hawazin and the Thaqif they decided to collaborate on a preemptive strike against the Muslims. And the primary organizer and the leader of this preemptive strike, of this idea, was a man named Malik ibn Auf. And he was from the Nasri tribe of the Hawazin. As we mentioned, the Hawazin was not just one tribe. It was a large collection of Arab tribes. And one of the tribes was the Nasri tribe. So Malik ibn Auf, he decided to Put together this print of strike along with the leaders of the Thaqif and Malik ibn Auf in order to um, to motivate his soldiers. He ordered them to bring their families, their wives, their children, their livestock, and their property with them. And we'll discuss that a little bit f- a little bit later. But the idea was that if his fighters knew that their families' lives were in danger if they lost then they will fight all the more harder. Well, we'll see how that turns out soon. Another person who, of interest who participated in this battle was a man named Dureid ibn Sima. He was from the Banu Jusham, and Banu Jusham was another one of these Hawaiian tribes. Now, Duraid ibn Sima, he was too old to fight at the time. Some sources say he was like 120 years old. I think that's, that's a bit exaggerated, but... I can accept that he was definitely definitely an elderly man, but he was too old to fight. Basically, but the the Hawaiian they brought him along because he had been a great warrior in his youth, and they hoped to uh, basically use his uh, advice and his knowledge to gain an advantage. But he was so old that he couldn't even really travel on his own, so they had to put him in a howdah, which is like a covered um, like a covered carriage, and then place that on top of the um on top of the camel because he couldn't ride on a camel on his own that's how old he was but anyway the will come along and we'll discuss him a little bit later so the pagan armies they marched out and they camped at a valley called altas which is about uh, maybe about 10 miles in between maybe about 20 or so miles in between um mecca and and taif According to the history books, as we mentioned, several pagan tribes did participate. The Hawazin was a large collection of tribes. And they also had the Thaqif, which was a very large tribe also. And the estimates say there are about 20,000 pagan soldiers altogether. Once again, I do understand that sometimes, I do believe that sometimes these numbers are a little exaggerated. Allah knows best if it was really 20,000 soldiers, but we'll take that as it is. I don't really have any evidence to say otherwise at this time. Anyway, so when the uh, pagan tribe started uh, gathering at um, Altas, so this, was, this was a valley, as I mentioned, in between Ta'if and Mecca, uh, Dureid, he st- he was, uh, once again, the old man, he was wondering why he's hearing animal sounds like uh, sheep's, ble- sheep's bleeding and, and uh, packs, pots being cooked and clanged and babies crying, and he's asking about this, and he talks to Malik ibn Auf, the leader of the whole, of this whole preemptive strike, he asked Malik ibn alf, why is he hearing all these strange sounds? And Malik explained that he, w- he ordered his men, as we mentioned, to bring out their livestock and their families and their properties in order to motivate them to fight to the death so they wouldn't turn tail if they saw things were going bad. Dureid, who was once again an old warrior, had been through this uh, many times. Malik ibn Alf, by the way, was a much younger man. Some sources say he was maybe in his late 20s or early 30s, so he was a fairly young man. Dureid said that nothing is going to stop a man from running for his life, basically saying that when someone fears for their life, they're not going to stop or fight harder simply because they're concerned about whether their camels will be stolen, their wives will be, will be captured. and Basically, he's saying in the heat of battle, you can't really try to predict what a man is going to do. And he advised Malik ibn Auf that if, the, if his forces were successful in beating the Muslims, then he had brought all, this, all these um, people out here for no reason and just wasted a lot of time and effort. And if he was wrong and the pagans lost, then he was going to be humiliated because all of these men, their families and the wives, their property and everything will be captured and taken as slaves and captives and, and spoils of war. So he also disagreed with Malik ibn alf's battle plans. Malik ibn alf, he had sent his best fighters up ahead along with the cavalry, Whereas Doraid, once again, the old warrior, he suggested that Malik ibn alf only send his cavalry out first to meet the Muslims and then have his soldiers positioned, held back and in positioned in high, in high places so that they can have a bit of a, of a height advantage over the Muslims and that they wouldn't be on the same ground level and it would be more difficult for the Muslim cavalry to come and ambush them. But Malik ibn alf, being the impetuous young man he was, he basically threw aside Duret's advice, scoffed at him, and called him a senile old man. However, there is also some evidence that other commanders within Malik ibn alf's army did take Duret's advice and positioned their, their forces accordingly or according to his advice. And so eventually the Prophet ﷺ learns about these gathering forces. As we mentioned, it's kind of hard to gather thousands of soldiers in the middle of the desert and news not get around. So when the Prophet ﷺ learned about this, he he at first sent a spy into the non-Muslim camp to try to get some more information. The spy was named Abdullah ibn Abi Hadrad al-Aslami. We'll just call him Ibn Abi Hadrad. So Ibn Abi Hadrad, he travelled to the camp at Altas, and he just blended in with thousands of soldiers so no one's going to really recognize one more guy walking around so he blended into the camp and even though he didn't learn their strategy he did learn their plans and so when he learned their plans which is basically to hit a hit the Muslims in Mecca with a preemptive strike he went back and reported that to the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam When the Prophet learned of their plans, he decided to meet the pagans in the field. And we mentioned earlier in um, the episode regarding the Battle of the Trench how the Prophet had turned his military philosophy around he was he was pretty much always going to be on the offensive whenever he heard that there was a threat against the muslims he wasn't going to hide in the city and let them come let his enemy come to him he was going to go out and meet them in the field we mentioned that earlier in um once again the battle of the trench but now the muslims needed some weapons so they had traveled fairly lightly on their trip to mecca the prophet as we mentioned in the last episode during the conquest of mecca he did not want people to know exactly what he was doing as he was traveling through the desert with ten thousand soldiers he didn't want everyone to know exactly what he was what he was doing so he didn't carry as many weapons as he normally as a full uh, army would have and they didn't fly banners and things like that and so the muslims were fairly lightly armed compared to if they were going on a full military expedition and they were just going to have full drag out war and so The Muslims didn't have enough weapons for everybody, not for this kind of battle. Furthermore, there were also many new recruits. Now, the Prophet had conquered Mecca. uh, Several thousand, really a couple thousand of the Quraysh now joined the Muslim forces. And so the Muslims, once again, didn't have enough weapons and armor and all the good stuff for everybody. So the Prophet contacted an armorer within Mecca named Safwan ibn Omeya. He was from among the Quraysh. So uh, Safwan Ibn Omeya, he had not yet accepted Islam. Uh, even though the prophet had conquered Mecca, the prophet did give people some time to think about it. As we mentioned before, everyone wasn't faced with a choice except accept Islam, die or leave. So uh, Safwan was there in Mecca still worshiping his idols. Anyway, the um, Safwana, by the way, had fought against the Muslims several times in the past. And in effect, he had even fought the Muslims as they entered Mecca. He was one, one, one of those among those forces that tried to um, meet up or stop Khalid ibn Walid's advances, but he was eventually put to flight by Khalid ibn Walid and his soldiers. So this is just proof that the Prophet did not force all of the Quraysh to immediately accept Islam. And the prophet didn't ha- really have the money at the time to buy the weapons from Safwan, and so they kind of handled it as a business transaction because Safwan at first was asking the prophet, "Like, are you ordering me to do this, or are you trying to make a business? Are you trying to to make a business transaction? Are you trying to buy it from me?" And the prophet entered, the, entered it as a, um, as if he was borrowing borrowing these weapons as a loan, that he would pay f- pay for them once he got the um, opportunity. So this was a showing, I guess, that the Prophet وسلم, still was treating his subjects, who were now essentially his captives, so he had, freed, he had pretty much freed them, he was treating them fairly, even though Safwan had been an enemy of the Muslims, even though he was a defeated enemy of the Muslims, even though he still had not accepted Islam, the Prophet still dealt with him in a business transaction. He didn't force him to do anything. He didn't just take his weapons as he easily could have if he wanted to. The Prophet handled it in a different way, and it shows that he didn't use his authority to belittle or harm those who were under him. And so once they had secured the weapons they needed, the Muslims headed out, and the Prophet had about 12,000 soldiers in his army. This included the original 10,000 who had traveled with him from Medina, as well as 2,000 new Muslims from Mecca who had joined their ranks. And so the Muslims headed off to meet the uh, pagan tribes that were amassing over between ta'if and mecca and this is in the beginning things started off pretty bad for the muslims first we got discussed this region that they're fighting on this whole region of western arabia that's on this coastline it is called the tihama and in this portion of the tihama there were lots of Narrow passes and nooks and gullies and caverns and lots of places for soldiers to hide and uh, also for soldiers to be ambushed. In this particular region of the Tihama, and remember the Tihama is this whole coastal area of of uh, the Arabian Peninsula. In this portion of the Tihama, the Muslims had to descend an, an incline down into a valley called Hunain. And when they were descending down into this valley of Hunain, it was actually just after daybreak, and so things were still relatively dark. As the, Mus- as the Muslim army was descending down this incline into the-, into the valley, the pagan forces jumped out and rushed them, I rushed the Muslims all at once and caught them by surprise. The Muslim forces were immediately routed and many of them fled and turned right back up and ran up the incline and many of the new Muslims who had just joined the prophets ranks they had showed they showed their weakness of faith and by the way wasn't just new Muslims there were also some people there who may have been considered hypocrites or even pagans Allah knows best about uh, those two. Now, bear in mind: if the Prophet's army was about ten thousand soldiers, the reports we have of this immediate route in the beginning of the Battle of Hunain was probably just the section that was closest to the Prophet, because most of the uh, narrators' viewpoints are discussing about what happens in the immediate vicinity of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So, bear in mind that uh, just trying to keep you aware that. Just because they say one thing happened in this section of the battlefield doesn't mean the same thing was happened in another part of the battlefield. Sometimes you only have information from one point of view. And in this case, for most of the Battle of Hunain, it appears we only have information uh, based upon people who are in the immediate vicinity around Prophet Muhammad. Now, regarding some of these weaker Muslims, we mentioned how they were just mentioned that some of the weaker Muslims had been here. These are people who had just converted. One of them was Abu Sufyan. He, When the Muslims got turned around in that initial ambush by the pagans, Abu Sufyan, he ran away and he was saying that these people are going to chase us all the way into the Red Sea, just showing his weakness of faith. And most likely he was among those running running backwards also. Another one was Safwan's brother. We mentioned Safwan Ibn Omayya, the one who Provided the prophet with the arms, he was still a pagan as well as his brother. And his brother was among the Muslims as well in this battle. We mentioned that there were pagans and also perhaps some hypocrites among there I'm, I'm reluctant to call certain people hypocrites because while their faith may have started off weak, later evidence shows that they may have changed. Allah knows best, but I'm not going to get too deep into that. Anyway, Safwan's brother was among these people, he was still a pagan. When he saw the Muslims or the Muslim army being being routed and ambushed and then flying back up the hill, he said, well, the sorcery is useless for them now. He's basically hinting that the Prophet's success so far was based on sorcery. So when he sees the Muslims being chased up the hill, he said, well, <laughs> look like your magic doesn't work on the battlefield. It's basically saying something like that. Okay, so now the Muslim forces are in chaos. They're running all over the place. The Prophet is trying to rally. There are some Muslims who are sticking close to the Prophet and um, maintaining a close knot around him, and they're not running. But in this chaos, one of the pagans who were still among the Muslims, and this he may have been a pagan, may have been a hypocrite. Allah knows best. This one was named Sheba ibn Uthman ibn Abi Talha, and he wanted, to, he wanted to avenge his father's death. His father had been killed at the Battle of Uhud years earlier. Now, I'm not sure if Sheba was a pagan or a hypocrite. I believe he died as a righteous Muslim, but at this time, I'm not sure if he had taken his Shahada, but he still harbored ill will against the Prophet, and he would just took his Shahada out of convenience, or if he was one of those people who were still pagan and he saw an opportunity. But nonetheless, Sheba wanted to kill the prophet because his uh, father had been killed at the Battle of Ahud. So in the in the chaos when everybody was running, Sheba tried to sneak up on the prophet and tried to attack him, but for some reason he could not. Now I got two different sources from these, actually three different sources. Some say that the prophet's companions protected him, that as he tried to come, come close the companions, Whether they knew exactly what he was trying to do or not, they wouldn't let him get close to the prophet. Other sources say that um, his body was paralyzed and that his body just became immobile and he just couldn't move until he had stepped away from the prophet. So as he tried to approach the prophet, his body froze up and he just couldn't get any further. And other sources say that he tried to approach the prophet, but he just collapsed, like his legs just gave out under him. Either case, whatever whatever... truly happened, Shaba was not able to attack the Prophet, and he eventually, eventually just gave up. I believe that Shaba wound up ex- accepting Islam wholeheartedly because he's the one who gave the report. And so uh, if he gave the report, that means he survived beyond this battle, and then he fought in, uh, he participated in other events with the Muslims. So I think this was just a one-off event, and afterwards, Shaba hopefully straightened out his uh, character anyway now the muslims are in chaos they're all running all over the place the prophet he stood fast he's calling for the men to come back around him he still has uh most of the muhajirun uh some of the ansars uh these are of course the ones who always took by from the beginning they were battle hardened veterans they had been to this before they had been with the prophet on many occasions so they weren't running also, the prophet's family stuck with him. There are many people who had not made the Hijrah, but they were part of the prophet's clan or, the, or his um, extended family. They stuck with him also. So the prophet is is standing there, his men flying all around him, running away from the pagans as he's coming through, as they're, as they're chasing them, and his closest advisors and his family members are standing surrounding him keeping tight making sure no harms come to the prophet and the prophet is calling after his soldiers who are running away yelling for them to come back but either the men in their fear and and panic either they couldn't hear the prophet or they heard him and just ignored him but when the prophet saw that no one was really listening to him he then ordered his uncle Abbas who had a very loud voice and a very commanding voice he ordered abbas to call them back and so abbas started yelling at them uh and ordering them to come back basically encourage i don't say yelling at them. he encouraged them to come back in a loud voice and so when the fighters they heard abbas yelling and, and shouting after them they got the heart back and they turned back around and started to come back and for some of the soldiers the uh they were riding the camels as they were running away But the narrow passes of this region were so tight, or in some cases, the camels were so frightened, their camels just wouldn't turn around. So some of the men who were running at one point, they hopped off their camels, grabbed the shield and sword and returned to the prophet on foot. And eventually the prophet had about 180 men around him again. So he went from just a few, like maybe about eight or so, to about 180 in a few minutes. Now, two of the companions who stuck with the prophet were two Ansar's husband and wife team named Abu Talha and Umm Sulaim. Um uh, Saleim, her son was actual, her first husband before Abu Talha was another companion named Malik. And uh, Um Salim, her first husband, had, they had a son named Anas. Anas ibn Malik uh, was Um Salim's son, Abu Talha's stepson. And at about 10 years old, she uh, gave uh, Anas ibn Malik to serve the Prophet, wasallam, and live in the Prophet's household. And Anas ibn Malik became one of the most revered uh, scholars and companions of the Prophet Muhammad, wasallam, and passed along several traditions about the Prophet's life and his character. And we get many hadiths that are sourced back to him as well. So, Umm Salim and Abu Talha, they were Ansars, and they stuck with the Prophet. And Abu Talha, by the way, he was an archer, and he had also fought at the Battle of Badr and the Battle of Ahud. This is just a one-off story that was interesting that came up up, uh, in my research into this battle. Umm Salim at that time was pregnant with their son, Abdullah ibn Abi Talha. would be anas ibn malik's half-brother anyway so she and her husband they had remained from the prophet and she was actually holding her husband's camel so her prophet was most likely standing by the her husband i'm sorry was standing by the prophet with his bow and arrow ready to shoot anybody who came close to the prophet and as the as the uh, soldiers were running off and fleeing from the prophet um that is the muslim soldiers were running running away in chaos she, she suggested she suggested that the prophet kill those soldiers who ran away from battle, just like he killed those who faced him in battle. But the prophet, he patiently responded that Allah was sufficient, indicating that he was not going to go and kill his own soldiers. But as she was standing there, once again, just imagine Muslim woman, big belly, pregnant, holding her husband's camel. Her husband turns back to look at her, Abu Talha. He turns back to look at her, and he sees that she's holding a dagger in her hand. And he asks, "Why are you holding this dagger in your hand?" And so she says that she replies, "If anybody, any of the pagans come near me, I'm going to use it to slit their belly." And Abu Talha, he he turns to a prophet, "Did you hear my, what, what my wife just said? Did you hear that?" He says in a kind of a, a, a joking, but yet proud way like wow i've married a real one here so anyway just an interesting story aside there uh, abu talha by the way would wind up killing 20 of the enemy soldiers so now the momentum was shifting as the as the muslims who were running away were now coming back to the prophet he had his uh, about 180 people around him again and so Muslims started fighting back and now that they had their their courage back and everything was going in their way now it was the pagans turn to t- turn to uh turn around and run basically Purgans, the pagans began to flee now Malik ibn Auf the leader of the sole preemptive strike he led the retreat back to Taif however some of some of the um some of the pagans instead took shelter in a fortress in Altas, which we, which he we mentioned was another valley in between Taif and Mecca. and then still others fled to another valley called Nachla. And uh, just like the old warrior Judda said, when these pagans started flying away and started running away, they left their families and their wealth behind, and almost all of them, all of the, all of their wives and children and livestock were all captured by the muslims it became part of the spoils of war and like I said if they capture their wives and children they're pretty much slaves as well as um as well as all their property but the story doesn't end there so don't think that this is it anyway the old warrior Duraid himself he was also running away and he was he was killed as he tried to flee as well So now with the pagans running off in every direction, the prophet now sends detachments from his army to go and chase after the fleeing pagans and to deal with them as they came across them. So we mentioned there are three different areas. There was um, a group of pagans that ran to Nachlas, and then this this is a valley about 50 miles away from Mecca. Um, others that ran to Autas, which we mentioned was another valley in between Hunain and Taif. And then several of them ran all the way back to Taif. The most Most of them actually ran all the way back to Taif. For those that uh, ran off to Nakhlas, the Prophet sent a cavalry, cavalry to, to ride them down. There was some uh, fighting, but eventually, uh, most of the pagans, who were primarily from the Thaqif tribe who went to Nakhlas, they eventually surrendered to the Muslims. At Altas, Abainu Ghayra, which was a sub from the Thaqif, who were from, once again, Taif, they fled to the valley of Altas and they were followed by a group of Muslims who were being led by. Uh, two men both from Yemen two Muslim companions both both from Yemen and uh, one of them was Abu Musa al-Ashari and the other was Abu Amir al-Ashari. Abu Amir was Abu Musa's uncle may not have been his blood uncle but they were from the same clan because Abu Musa referred to him as uh, as uncle but that doesn't necessarily mean he was his, his his um maternal or paternal uncle could have just been an older member of the same clan any case, they are both from Yemen and they have migrated to Medina after accepting Islam. Uh, Abu Musa al-Ashari, if his name sounds familiar, he is known for serving under Caliph Omar ibn khattab during his caliphate. He is also known for representing Ali ibn Abi Talib during his uh, his wars with Wa'awiyah. You can listen to, I believe, uh, Season 2 of the Islamic History Podcast for more about that. Anyway, Abu Musa's uncle, Abu Amir, he was struck by an arrow and then killed while they were chasing the uh, Banu Haida from the Thaqif uh, tribe back to Autas. Abu Musa, he was able to uh, fight that archer who killed his uncle and he eventually killed him and that archer happened to be Durayd's son, the old warrior, the old pagan warrior who was also killed. Abu Musa wound up killing his son who had killed Abu Musa's uncle. Eventually, the survivors of at Altas, they also surrendered to the Muslims. But the bulk of the pagan army ran back to Ta'if. So Malik ibn Auf, his whole plan had fallen apart. He's racing back to Ta'if. And he stops briefly to let his the the weak ones and the stragglers from his from his soldiers catch up with him, and then they go and hurry back inside the city, and they shut the gates and they prepare prepare for a final siege. So the prophet he led the main force of his soldiers from the valley of Hunain towards Taif. As the Muslims are traveling, they do come across a few pagan fortresses, uh, minor fortresses, and a few pagan um, gardens and stuff. And they destroy those unless they, uh, the people who were manning them surrendered. Uh, from what I've read, Muslims didn't surrender, so the Prophet destroyed them. And finally, the Muslims camped out just outside of the city of Taif. And remember now, Malik ibn Auf and his soldiers are are inside Ta'if, they're getting ready for this either final battle or long siege, probably a little bit of both, and so they're hunkering down. So the Muslims camped uh, right outside of Ta'if, but they were a little bit too close to the walls of Ta'if, and this is, I won't say the first example of a Muslim siege, but this, what, what transpires next will kind of show the lack of experience with siege warfare on behalf of the Muslims at this time. Now, they would, learn, of course, learn eventually, but at this time, you're going to hear some of the result of the Muslims' lack of experience for true siege warfare. First, the Muslims camped too close to Taif, and so while the Muslims camped Close to Taif, the Taif archers were inside this fortified city. They started picking off the Muslims as they were uh, with you know, with arrows as the Muslims were trying to set up camps. So the Prophet realized that this wasn't was a problem, and so they relocated to higher ground out of range of the archers. One mistake right there, just owing to the Muslims' lack of experience with true siege warfare. Remember, the Muslims had not really fought this kind of battle before. There may have been, I believe, during. There, there were a few examples of some sieges and some of the earlier battles, but they are minor. They hadn't really had experience with a real, true siege like this. And so now the Muslims put them put Ta'if under siege, and the siege lasted for about two weeks. Some say it was 20 days, but some say 15, 18, 19. I heard lots of different reports. Somewhere between 15 and 20 days, so roughly between two to three weeks. During this period, the Muslims destroyed the vineyards around Ta'if to prevent the uh, the inhabitants of Taif from getting any benefit from them, and also to kind of get retaliation because the Muslims were sitting here now on this long siege. But at the same time, the Prophet also converted several of the tribes surrounding Taif. So those two things were successful parts of the Muslim siege campaign. Here is the unsuccessful part, though. The Muslims had learned about catapults and battering rams by this time, and so they had both of them. They had a very, from the sound of it at least, a very um, primitive form of battering ram, and the Muslims tried to use this battering ram to break down the walls of Taif or the gates of Taif. The battering ram, from what I can understand from it, was a very primitive primitive sort. So it had like a, a heavy log of some sort, maybe with a a, a metal. Um, head to it but the log was placed on top of a cart with wheels basically and then over that was a, a wooden roof basically to protect the muslims from arrows or whoever was pushing it to protect them from arrows as they shot down on them. so that people could roll this log on this cart with this wooden covering over them imagine this wooden covering like a traditional Um, house, you know, sloped down like a house, like the roof of a house. And so they will run with this and try to break through, use the log to on this cart to try to break through the gates. And so The Muslims also had catapults, and I don't have much information about the type of catapults they used, but catapults back then were pretty much all the same type. Uh, I don't believe they had the more powerful catapults that would come along during the Middle Ages. So these catapults were pretty much operated by a spring mechanism. They pulled them back, loaded stones or something in them, and then they cut a tripwire that would then fling these stones pretty far, and they will bash against the walls. But... Once again, they have to have pretty powerful stones and it doesn't appear as if these catapults were that strong because the Muslims were not able to break through the walls. The battering ram was even more dangerous, basically. The catapult was pretty much just useless. But the battering ram was just really dangerous for the Muslims. So as I mentioned, you had the covering, so the Muslims would run with this um, battering ram and uh, and hit the gates of Ta'if. But The pagan fighters who were in the ramparts of the city, they would throw down hot iron onto the roof of this battering ram. And this would naturally, of course, set this wooden battering ram on fire. When that happened, the Muslims had to jump out from under this burning battering ram. And when they did that, the archers, the pagan archers would pick them off. And so... The siege wasn't really going too well, and so after about two to three weeks, however long it was, the Prophet decided it was time to call off the siege. For one, they had heard that Taif had enough food to hold out for a year. The Muslims weren't really prepared for a siege, not that kind of siege. The Prophet hadn't come out to Mecca to to really hold on to put the city under siege. His intention was just to conquer Mecca and that was it, at least as far as we know. Um, I don't, I'm not aware of any of, any other, other intention of his, so they didn't have the equipment for a full head-on siege and I don't really don't think the Muslims really had the experience for it just yet. The Muslims had already lost several soldiers in the siege. They were being picked off by arrows and they had, they had lost a lot. The Muslims had basically won the Battle of Hunain, but the siege of Taif wasn't going so well and the prophet had actually gotten a certain victory from the siege because he had destroyed Taif's vineyards and also he had converted most of the most of the surrounding tribes of Taif so now Taif was isolated and isolated and surrounded by allies of the prophet sallallahu so after a while the prophet decided to Uh, lift the siege and some of the muslims especially the newer ones they were kind of upset about that because they wanted the chance at plunder and spoils of war and all that kind of stuff But in any case, the Prophet decided to lift the siege and he went to um, a well named Al-Ja'arana, which is about 15 miles from Mecca, in between Mecca and Ta'if. And this was where the captives and the spoils of war from the Battle of Hunayn had been taken. And the Prophet went to this area to go and divide them up after he lifted the siege. We'll discuss the spoils of war, his division of the spoils of war, inshallah, in the next episode. And so, until then... Assalamu alaikum, wa rahmatullahi wa bada